In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Welcome once again to our life series in which we are going through the original scriptures of our religion to try to extract principles through which we can live Islamically in a very complex world. The main theme that we are discussing is the theme of knowledge. After we explained the importance of knowledge and reason in Islam, we said that there are two conditions that have to be met for knowledge and rationality to, to be considered Islamic, to be considered aligned with the teachings of Islam. The first one is that you intend to use knowledge for the reasons that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to use them. That you are not seeking knowledge, to learn knowledge, to share knowledge. You're not doing that only for worldly gains. You're doing that to live in the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to live. And we call that sincerity. That you do that for the sake of God. The second condition is that knowledge must lead to action. In Islam, it's not sufficient. It's not enough for you to accumulate information in your memory, in your mind, and consider that to be knowledge. This is not the full meaning of knowledge in Islam. Knowledge cannot stop at the amount of information that you carry in your mind and in your memory. Anything, any piece of information that you learn, for it to be truly knowledge according to the definition of Islam, must show in your behavior. It must show in your conduct. It must change the way you see the world. It must, it must show in the manner in which you carry yourself in the world. And we call that action. So where do we start with action? The first most important piece based on what we had said until that point is therefore my first action concretely must become that I seek knowledge, that I learn knowledge. And so I become a learner. And that's why we said we are now going to start kind of a, a mini topic in our series in this theme of knowledge that will lead to building the knowledge community. The knowledge community is going to be made up of the learner. So we talked about the learner in perhaps around 15 lectures, the teacher and the scholar, and then the community. And once we're done talking about all of those pieces, then we have a general idea of what our religion has said, what are the general teachings of our religion about how a community is built and the importance of knowledge in that community. That's where we're headed. So we spoke about the learner. What does it mean to be a learner in Islam? The importance of the learner. From the more spiritual and deeper meanings of the learner to the very practical considerations of being a learner, including how you manage your time and how you eat and so on and so forth, being part of a group and the seriousness that you give to your studies and when to study and what to study. And we have not spoken in detail about the types of knowledge and how to prioritize them yet. This is coming, inshallah. So this part is done. The second part, therefore, becomes the teacher. And we said we're trying to focus on, look, trying to look at this from two angles. The first one is that now that you have acquired the knowledge, you are going to become the teacher. That's one. You have a duty towards that knowledge, a lot of duties in fact, and one of the most important ones, if not the most important, beyond yourself and acting based on the knowledge you know, is that you share that knowledge with others. If you have enough knowledge and you are able to share it with others, then this becomes the duty. So you have to become the teacher, you have to become the scholar. That's one. And two, as a learner, you're also trying to find the person, to identify a person to say, this is going to be my teacher. 
How do I choose this person? So this applies to the other. We need to understand what are the traits, what are the characteristics of the teacher who is also the scholar. You can look at the same person as being the scholar, the person who carries the knowledge and the person who's performing the role of the teacher to you. Whether the person knows they're your teacher or not is besides the point. It's what you are using that person for. Okay, so that on one side, that person, that scholar in general in themselves or the teacher in themselves, that's one side of it. That you're looking outside because you're trying to find that person from whom you're going to gain all this knowledge. And we said this is very important because whether we realize this or not, this person is going to have much more impact on us than just sharing pieces of information. Islam is very clear that the moment you start listening to someone, the more you are opening your mind and your heart to a speaker or to a source of information and knowledge, the more you are allowing that person to shape you or that source of knowledge to shape you. And that's why we emphasize so much of the importance of being aware of this so that you know when you watch a movie, when you read a book, when you constantly listen to someone, you have to realize based on Islamic teachings how much you are opening yourself up to being molded and shaped by these ideas and this information. And so if you think that this is perhaps not the best information or the best source of information, don't take it lightly and say, yeah, but this is just for entertainment and this is just for fun and I'm just curious and so on and so forth. If you know and you should track yourself, you should watch yourself to see what is the influence of this type of information, of this speaker, of that person or guru or book or movie on me, on my behavior, on my outlook in life. This is very important. And so you want to choose the right person. And secondly, you want to become that person. Whether you want to or not, the moment that you carry the information means that you now have a duty to share it. And in fact, in a lot of cases, you are starting to share it. Whether you're doing this intentionally in a formal setting where you bring people in and you start to teach them like we're doing here, or just the manner in which you carry yourself and talk to people in general, the knowledge that you have is going to start having an impact on those around you. And so when we talk about the traits and the characteristics of the teacher and the scholar, it's not only about the other, that other person that I'm looking for to find to be considered my teacher. It's also about myself. What am I doing with the knowledge I have? I have to start now moving towards the characteristics. When I say a teacher and, or a scholar in Islam is A, B, C, D, then those things have to show in the manner in which I carry myself because I now carry knowledge. And so the knowledge that I carry has to show in my behavior and in my conduct, right? Okay, so now we are still in the traits and in the characteristics of the teacher and the scholar, but we said don't just focus on the other. We're not just focused on that other person that you know everybody formally recognizes as a scholar or a teacher. You're also constantly looking at yourself to see when I'm looking at 10, 15, 20 of these characteristics, how many of these do I match? How many of these do I find in myself? Because now I am on this path of seeking knowledge, of learning. Okay, so after all of this, we started to focus specifically on some characteristics, some traits of the scholar, the teacher, the person who carries knowledge in Islam. We spoke about the importance of God-fearing. We spoke about the importance of piety. We spoke about the importance of not being obsessed with this world. We spoke about the importance of prioritizing the afterlife. And we also spoke about a few general traits that have to do with how people learn from you. That you have humility and compassion and patience and modesty. We spoke about those and inshallah we're going to continue on those today. The second theme about the scholar and the teacher had to do with our social duties. So this goes beyond the duty of the knowledge itself towards me. When I carry knowledge, that knowledge means that this has to bring me, in short, closer to God. That's, that was the first conclusion. What we concluded from the second part 
is that regardless of this, because this has to do with me and wanting to get closer to God with that knowledge, okay? Be beyond that, or regardless of that point, and whether I accept this role or not for myself in society, in our community, we saw that our religion says that there is a social duty with knowledge. That people recognize you as being someone who carries knowledge. And even if they don't, God recognizes you as someone who now knows things. You may know a little and you, you may know a lot, but you know, you know something. That knowledge means that you now have a social duty. In the first part, you had an individual duty that had to do with yourself. I know, therefore, I have to go closer to God with that knowledge. In the second part, I know, therefore, I have a social duty. I have a duty towards others. Regardless of whether I'm being a good person with the knowledge I have or not, I have a duty towards others. And if others recognize me as being someone who carries knowledge or who represents knowledge, then that duty increases, that responsibility increases. And we said sometimes this could be very formal. I'm sitting here lecturing. This is very formal. And sometimes it's very informal. As we said, we all have siblings. We all have children. Or we will, inshallah, have children. You don't think that you're influencing others? If you're older, you don't think that they are considering you, whether you have accepted this or not, they're considering you to be a role model? Don't you have neighbors? Where, when you are a minority in a society like here in Canada, don't your neighbors recognize you as representing your religion? Whether you have accepted this role or not, this is how society views you. This is how your community views you. This is how your, your family members view you. Your friends view you. You are a Muslim. You carry a certain amount of knowledge. Therefore, you have a duty towards that knowledge. Regardless of what you want to do with it yourself, God recognizes that you know things and therefore you're going to have to act in a certain way. Beyond yourself. Because that behavior is going to affect others. It might invite and welcome others to the truth and to want to be like you, to learn from you, to be influenced by you, or the opposite. It's going to push them away because this is what they're associating. They associate you, the role model, they associate you, the representative of religion, the representative of Ahl al-Bayt, whatever it may be. They associate you with Islamic knowledge. Whatever and however much or little you carry of that Islamic knowledge internally. That's how it's viewed. And so you have a social duty, a social responsibility beyond the individual responsibility. And inshallah, this point has been made clear. That's what we spent a few lectures on. And the reason we're emphasizing on this is because when we went to look at the narrations, the reports that talk about we haven't talked about the report, the rewards of the scholars and the teachers yet. That will, we're keeping that, we're keeping that at the, till the end. But we spoke about some of the punishment reserved to the evil, the bad, the arrogant, and so on and so forth, scholar and teacher. And we saw how in the narrations there is an insistence that the worst of the creatures in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are the evil scholars. The worst of people are the bad scholars. Why? The worst of people in punishment in the afterlife are the bad scholars. There's a huge punishment reserved for the person who is a preacher or a lecturer or so on and so forth, who invites people to religion, who is recognized as a scholar or a teacher of religion, and who does not act based on their knowledge. We said that here the discussion is different. It's not just because you carry the knowledge. It's because there's a social dimension. You are impacting others. It's not just about yourself and what you do with the knowledge. You don't want to worship God or come closer to God with that knowledge. That's up to you. You're free to do so. But that you're impacting the lives of others. 
that you are becoming a reason why people don't come to the truth. When you could have been, when God gave you or put you in a position to bring people to the truth because of what you know, however little or however much that is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put you in that position. So if you use it to do the opposite, there's an additional punishment here. Because there's an additional duty, there's an additional responsibility. So inshallah, this was the second theme we talked about. The social dimension of the of the knowledge, beyond the individual one. And of course we mentioned that, for instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reserves greater punishment, that 70 sins are going to be forgiven to the commoner before a single sin is uh, forgiven to a scholar, for instance, to stay away from the scholar is obsessed with this life. More knowledge is supposed to mean more fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and better conduct. And then there were some ahadith that definitely would have deserved much, much more discussion because of how important they are and how rich they are. One of them, if you will remember, is the hadith of Imam al-Sadiq if I remember correctly, where he was talking about what he expects from his Shia. And we said this hadith clearly shows that the Imam is talking about people gathered here in front of him who met two descriptions. The first is that they are his Shia, his followers. So he's talking to them differently. And the second one is that they are scholars because he talks about knowledge. So they're not just commoners. They're not people who are working in the trades and who don't carry knowledge. No, the Imam insists to explain the importance, what it means now that you carry knowledge. What does it mean? And so you'll remember here the Imam, he gave some very high standards. He said, those who follow us, the Imam is saying, I expect them to have the most perfect of ruku' and sujood. You remember that? Your prayer is supposed to be the best of prayers. And we explained why the Imam might talk about the prayer. And we said that this standard extends way beyond the prayer, as the Imam explained. It extends to every aspect of your life. The Imam expects you. This is the social duty. This is the social responsibility. The Imam says, you want to be my follower? You want to be my Shia? Then I expect you to be the best. In a community, you're the best. In a society, you're the best. That's how you achieve our wilayah, the Imam said. It has to show in your conduct. Words are not enough. Claims are not enough. It has to show in your worship and God-fearing, and it has to show in your actions in general. And the Imam also said, and that which is with God, the reward, heaven, paradise, can only be achieved through amal. You can say, I love the Imam as much as you want. The Imam says, that's not enough. I want to see amal. Prove that with your actions. That is how you achieve our wilaya and that's how you reach what is with God. Everything is earned. And we see that in the lives of Ahlul Bayt They should be the ones who are already there. They already have the knowledge, they already have the piety and God-fearing. And you look at their conduct, you look at their lives, nothing was taken for granted. Every single day their worship, their actions, no opportunity is wasted. So the Imams want this to show in their followers. You're my follower, show that in your actions. And then the Imam was of course also insisting on, and if you are a scholar, if you have additional knowledge that the commoners don't have, then there's even more responsibility upon you towards your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and towards these very high standards. Okay. There was another hadith, perhaps last week there was this hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam and then we'll get into the new hadith. Also I think worth pointing out, highlighting, in which Imam Ali alayhi salam in very few words he presented what we said could be the foundations of two entire theories from one hadith. 
The first one would be a theory about leadership. The second one would be a theory about education. The conclusions from that hadith that the Imam says is that when someone puts themselves in a position where they want to teach others, they have to start by teaching themselves, their own self. That's your theory of leadership. Before I teach others, I want to be in a position of leadership, the Imam says. You want to lead, start with yourself. That's one. And two, the Imam said, after you start educating yourself, when you start teaching others and educating others, it has to start with action, not words. That's your theory of education. This applies to the small children in a kindergarten, this applies to a family, this applies to a community, this applies to society. Theory of education. You want to educate, you want to train, you want to change minds, you want to teach people. How do you do it? Words are nice. What I'm doing right here now, that's nice. But that's a luxury. That's secondary. The real teaching Imam Ali said is, Start with actions. Don't start with words. And then his conclusion in those few words Imam Ali salam said is that the person who has self-trained, self-disciplined, who's trained themselves and educated themselves and worked on themselves, it is much more worthy of respect and merit and high rank than the person who is teaching others. With this, he brings everything together. He brings the leadership and the education together. Which completely flips our own standards of who is worthy of admiration and respect and leadership and so on and so forth. Okay, but to come back to all of this, we're linking this, our topic here, is the teacher and the scholar and the importance of action and the importance of having the right conduct and not acting in a way that is hypocritical. And you'll remember that very powerful image that came back in a number of narrations where the Holy Prophet, Imam Ali alayhi salam, the other Imams are saying the people who will have the greatest regret in the afterlife. Who are they? We said the afterlife, it's mentioned in our religion as being the day of resurrection, Yawm al-Qiyamah. It's called Yawm al-Hasra. That's one of its names. It's a day of regret. Because everyone will regret all the missed opportunities, all the good that they could have done, every missed second and moment and minute and hour and day and month and year of our lives that we're not using as we should. So this applies to everyone. But then the hadith say, but the ones who will feel the greatest of regret, we can all come up with all sorts of things on who might feel the greatest of regret. And so it may come as a surprise when the ahadith say is going to be the scholar and the preacher who did not act based on what they were teaching and what they were trying to preach to others. And we saw at the end, I think we finished with that hadith where you have people who are now in heaven who see people in hell. And when they spoke to them, when they talked to them, in the afterlife, they tell them, what got you in hell when you were the ones who were teaching us? We came to heaven. We ended up in heaven because of your teaching and your training and your education. And they said, yes, but we did not follow our own advice. We neglected ourselves. We taught you things that we did not act by. And others benefited from our teaching and our information. And as I said, this might apply. Automatically we might think of the big name and the big scholar and we say this would apply to them. How dangerous is the ground they're standing on? But there's another way to understand this that applies to all of us. We all have information and knowledge. We all try to influence others. As we said, people in our family, people in our community, we're all trying to bring people to the truth, to make them better people. So this, inshallah, becomes a constant reminder and warning to us. Don't become the person who's used as a bridge so that others reach the truth 
and end up in heaven and get the divine rewards and you stay behind and you don't benefit from your own advice because your actions don't match your words and people are benefiting from your words. But for yourself, your actions are not matching your words. Okay, so inshallah, all of that was clear. Then we started a new heading. We said now inshallah, this was the heavier part. And we always go in the series between heavier and lighter. So now inshallah, this might be a little bit lighter. We're still in akhlaq, we're still, the moment we're in spirituality, it's a little bit heavier. But there's a more practical dimension to this. And we call these moral traits. Things that should show in the manner in which someone conducts themselves in this world. So we're still talking about the traits of the teacher, of the scholar, of the person who carries knowledge. But now we're focusing on the ahadith that have to do with general conduct in life. So this is not, you know, how deep it goes in your soul and what kind of soul do you carry now and things that affect you in your afterlife. We're talking about your general conduct in this world. And we mentioned one of them, one of the ahadith or one of the themes had to do with nobility of character. We saw how Imam Ali says when someone is of a more noble, elevated, good character, the more knowledge they gain, the more modest they become. And the person who is of a low, bad character, the more knowledge they gain, the more arrogant they become. And they abuse others with the knowledge that they carry. Okay, that was the first set of ahadith. The second one had to do with the importance of arrogance and tyranny. And this is, inshallah, by now you've seen that. This is a constant theme. The moment you talk about knowledge, the moment there's going to be a link somehow with arrogance. How do you conduct yourself with yourself? How do you see yourself now? How do you see a relationship with God? And how do you see a relationship with other people? True knowledge, and we saw the ahadith about this, true knowledge must mean, necessarily means, and this is a clue, is the knowledge I'm gaining true knowledge. This is the knowledge that God wants. True knowledge has to mean that you become more modest. It has to mean that you become more humble. Not the opposite. If it leads to more arrogance and tyranny and domination over others, there's something wrong. Either with you or with the knowledge you're gaining. Okay, and we said other examples of these moral traits and we're going to start seeing some of them. Foolishness. So of course a lot of these are about avoiding. These are the negative traits. Foolishness. Another one is neglect. Being heedless. Being unaware in this world. Another one, jealousy. And we said, this is just a quick reminder, we spoke about this. If our narrations, our ahadith, emphasize these traits so much, there's a reason. And the reason is that this is just human nature. When you are given power, rare, the exception, is the human being who is automatically going to use that power for good. The human tendency is that now I have power, I'm going to use it and abuse it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the moment the human being feels that they have, istagna is not only to have possessions, it's to feel self-sufficient. The moment the human being feels that they're suffice, they're good, they transgress. Rule. This is human nature. What will prevent that? Self-discipline. Where does self-discipline come from? Religion. That you can't just follow your desire blindly. You may want to use it that way. You may want to dominate. Because you have the power. Who's going to stop you? And this is why we linked, when we spoke earlier, this social responsibility of knowledge. You saw the ahadith. Two other areas were mentioned. One of them was rulers 
or political power. And the other one was those who are wealthy or monetary power. They were linked with the ulama. If they are good, most people will be good. If they are bad, most people will be bad. Why? Because they have that much influence. This is power in society. The human general tendency is that the moment you have this type of power, unless you restrain it and you have the discipline to keep it in check and to control it, it's going to lead to things like arrogance, jealousy, being completely unaware and heedless and distracted in this world. And we're going to see other things related to knowledge and these moral traits that we're going to look at. Okay, so we spoke about this. This is just a reminder. So, so the first hadith, and I apologize for the longer recap. When people join, I try to add a little bit more of what we covered, inshallah, so that you know what, what we've covered and where we're going with this. So the first hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, you're going to see two of these moral traits highlighted. Foolishness and ghafla, heedlessness. Being unaware. Imam Ali alayhi salam says, لا يكون السفه والغرة في قلب العالم I'm going to say it in the second version of this hadith. The second version is لا يكون السفه والعزة في قلب العالم So it's just a dot. So if you know the history of the Arabic language and how the hadith were written, you might find at times these different versions of the same hadith, it's the same word, except that if you put the the dot on the the ayn, it becomes a ghain, and if you put it over the ra, it becomes a zai. So the same word is ghirra or izzah. And they mean two different things. So Imam Ali salam is saying, foolishness, according to the first version, foolishness and heedlessness, and we can explain that, being unaware, being neglectful, being forgetful, being distracted. So foolishness and this trait, غرّة, they will not combine, they will not be found together in the heart of a scholar. According to the second version, foolishness and arrogance. And perhaps in the meaning of tyranny, that you feel superior to others. Foolishness, and arrogance will not be found together in the heart of a scholar. What do these words mean? First, when the Imam says foolishness, and this is the whole topic that we're discussing here, if the person is truly a scholar, it needs to show in their general character, in their general conduct, the manner in which you carry yourself in the world. And this is going to open a huge discussion. If you have a certain amount of knowledge, the moment you start understanding your place in the world, that you have a God, that that God has created you for a specific purpose, you cannot live in the same way as someone who does not have that worldview. You can't live in the same way as someone who believes that when you die, everything ends. That there is no reward and no punishment for every act, every thought, everything that you do in this world. This needs to show. So how aware are you of this? Sefah in Arabic means someone who acts in a way that is not compatible with reason, with rationality. The Quran uses the term. At some point it says, don't give your money to the sufaha. The money that God has given you, don't give it to the sufaha. What does it mean? If someone does not have the maturity, the ability to reason properly, they're going to waste that money. So you keep that money and you spend on them, the Quran says. Why? That's the importance of rationality. Create a system of social care, of welfare, social welfare, so that those who are not responsible enough to use their money 
in a wise way are being taken care of appropriately and in a just way. This is their money or your money, do not waste it on them because they will not know how to use that money. This is a fiqhi, this is a legal notion. But this applies to everything. A religion gives a lot of importance to your ability to use your reason. So when the imam says, this foolishness, this way to act in a way that does not match reason, rationality in the world, should not be found in the heart of a scholar. Why? It doesn't match, and this is where it gets very real, very quickly for all of us. It doesn't match for me to believe in God and believe in the afterlife, understand that death is coming, that everything I do in this world means something, that it equals a reward or a punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and to live in a way as though all of that is not the case. That's not very rational. You either believe in that, you either believe that there's a God watching you every moment, or you don't. So how aware are you of this? Do you act in a way that shows that you believe in this or not? So we can say this at a very high level. We can say this in your life in general. If I were to look at your life, let's say we live 80 years in this world. If I were to look at your 80 years all put together, does it show in general that you believed in a God, that you knew that death was inevitable, that you knew that there's an afterlife, there's a heaven and a hell and justice, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the judge himself, or not? That's one way to put it. And perhaps that's the easier way to put it. It becomes a lot more real and a lot more hard and a lot more serious if instead of looking at our whole life in general, if I were to look, for instance, at a day, or a week, or an hour, or minute by minute, this is where we start seeing, are you living foolishly? Or are you living in a way that is compatible with this belief? Are you living in a ghirrah? Ghirrah means ghafla. Means you're unaware, you're distracted, you're heedless. This word is used, for instance, they say the soldiers were in this state and they were attacked. Just so that you, you know how this term is used in Arabic. Do you live in that way? As though this is not happening, you're too distracted to realize all of this is happening? That there's a God, that there's an afterlife, that there is death, or not? Okay, so this becomes, the, this is the topic the topic is that beyond everything we said, the spirituality of it, the social dimension of knowledge, in general, in your life, in the manner in which you conduct yourself, you have to have a certain level of seriousness. Your life cannot just be fun and entertainment and chilling and hanging out and so on and so forth. There can be a dose of that, but this cannot be your life in general. Or it's not compatible. And so anyone looking from the outside would say, this is foolishness and heedlessness. You either believe in that and so you act accordingly or you don't. If you don't, that's fine. You already don't believe that there's a God and there, you don't believe that there's an afterlife. It doesn't matter how you live here. But if you do, then it needs to show. Otherwise, you should be the first to recognize that this is foolishness. Okay, that's the first point. The second point is, there's a more superficial or more high-level general understanding when the ruwaya says, for instance, safah and ghirrah, or safah and izzah, that you have foolishness and that you have heedlessness. This can show at a very deep meaning, as we said, which means, for instance, you are neglectful and forgetful of an afterlife. Or it can show in a very simple way, in the day-to-day -day life that you live. When people look at your life, do they say that this is a life of foolishness? You're kind of just going around in life, 
unaware, without purpose, aimlessly, randomly moving along? Or does it look like there is a little bit more rationality and judgment and wisdom behind your life? Okay, so that's the second point related to this hadith. A third one. This third point has to do with if we want to really fully apply this condition, the standard of this hadith. If I want to really apply it, as I said, for instance, if I want to look, let's say, at the level of a day. If we were to sit back and look at our days, each one of us would sit and look at, let's say you take a week or a month, and you analyze or you track or you journal, how did I spend my time in that day? How many hours did I do A and B and C and D? How much energy went into? How much thought went into? How much money went into each one of these activities? How important is this in my life? How important is that in my life? If we were to do this for ourselves, and if we were to do this for others, we, I think, would all agree that this is a very high standard to meet. The Imam is saying, you will not find any of these two traits in the heart of a scholar. You won't find any of it. That is a very high standard. Because I think any one of us, if we were to look at our lives, or we would look at the lives of others, we would say there is some of it, perhaps an acceptable amount of it. And to each of us, we will justify what's the acceptable amount. Is it 15 minutes? Is it 4 hours? Is it 10 days? It doesn't matter. To each of us, we're going to have a standard. But the full application of this, we agree, is going to be very, very high. So there's a first point and a second point I want to mention regarding this very high standard. The first one is that when I apply it to others, this is not going to be found in perfection anywhere. Does it mean that therefore there are no scholars? No. All it means is that the perfect model that we're looking for, if it's not there, we have to accept what comes as close to it as possible. And when I am stuck, I need to go find the knowledge and I need to go find what I need from others where I find it. And this is a point we made much earlier in the series. We said, first, you must gain Anything that is of use to you from others, go gain it. Knowledge, go gain it. Ideally, you're gaining it from the person who is perfect. Full piety, full God-fearing, full detachment from the world, full representative of the truth in every way. If that's impossible to find, does it mean therefore you don't look for knowledge? No. What if the knowledge you need is not even with someone who believes in God or religion or the afterlife? What do I do? We said you go and seek that knowledge. Because your religion says go and seek the knowledge. You need the knowledge. If you can seek it from the person who also has a spiritual dimension, that's your duty. If that person is not there, or it's too hard to reach, who will give you that knowledge? You still have to go and get the knowledge from wherever you can. And so this still applies here. Right? So when we talk about these, the standards are very high. Again, as a reminder... This doesn't mean, therefore, that you don't do it because the standard can't be found anywhere. It just is a reminder that the standard is very high. That's first. But you still have the duty. The second point, the second point has to do with when we apply the standard, now we applied it to others. Now we have, have to apply the standard to ourselves. And that's why we said this whole point, when we talk about the teacher and the scholar, don't always look outside of yourself. Look at yourself too. You do carry a certain amount of knowledge. You do know enough that you should be able to act on in a way that's aligned with your knowledge. Okay, so what does that mean? What that means is that, as we said, if we were to look at our own lives in an hour, in a day, in a week, in a month, perhaps there's a lot of room for improvement. If I look at my life and I see that there's a lot of these two traits, a lot of forgetfulness, a lot of foolishness in my life, I need to do something about it. 
What does that mean? So here, this is the big question. In order to avoid this, we need a lot of practice. And we're lucky enough to follow this religion of ours that has built in a lot of forced practice because we won't practice on our own. Until you realize the benefits of practicing, you won't do it. So our religion forces you. For instance, five times a day, a hook brings you back to God. Remember, there's a God. Remember, there's an afterlife. That's the point of prayer. It's meant to be in the middle of your day. It's meant to be when you're busy with a whole bunch of other things. You're busy with sleep. You're busy with food. You're busy with family. You're busy with work. You're busy with school. Whatever it may be. That's the point. Because when you're busy, you're distracted. And God says, remember there's a prayer. Come back. While you're doing this, what's the purpose? What's your intention from this work, this school, this family, this sleep, whatever it may be? Did you remember to pray? Do you remember what's the general purpose from all of this? Why you're doing all of this? This is the constant reminder. And this is practice. So if you do your prayer and you're not aware of this, it's just motions and a ritual, you won't get that benefit. You need a lot more than this is the bare minimum in our religion, the five daily prayers. And in a lot of cases, we have to add a lot more. What else do you do in your day? What else do you do in your week? You have to add things. Because otherwise, by default, the human being is going to be distracted and forgetful and acting foolishly. This is the default. This is a normal human nature and tendency. So you have to do something, whatever it may be for you. You look at your own life and say, I need to listen to a lecture. And it has to be regular. I need to read a book. I need to recite a few verses of the Quran every day and think about them all day. I open my day with five verses of the Quran and I try to keep those five verses in my mind all day. And try to see what those does do those five verses mean for me in my day. It doesn't matter what it is. But if you do it in a ritual way, and it has no meaning, then this is not going to serve as a reminder. And if you want it to serve as a reminder, one, you have to be aware. You're doing this with intent. That's the niya. That's the point of the intent. One. And secondly, when you do this, you have to add a little bit of regularity to it. If you do it once, it's not enough. It's not going to make a dent. Once in a blue moon, occasionally, it's not going to make a dent. It has to be regular. In the case of our prayer, God deemed that it has to be five times in a single day. And that's just the bare minimum. And that's why none of our imams pray five times a day. The Holy Prophet never prayed five times a day. The minimum was the 50 in a day. Why? Because that's just the bare minimum. And they want to be a lot more aware. They want to be a lot more in the state of not being forgetful. If you go back to the narrations that talk about the importance of reciting the Qur'an every day. The first, the first rank is reciting how many verses a day? 50. 50 verses a day. The Ruwayah, what does it say? لَمْ يُكْتَبْ مِنَ الْغَافِلِينَ And then the merits start. Beyond, so at 100 verses, you start being of a certain rank. If you daily recite 100 verses. 150, 200, 300, 500, 1000 verses a day. Then you reach a, a rank, if this is consistent. What about 50? The first one, the first layer. The Ruwayah doesn't say you have reached a rank. The Ruwayah says you've been rescued from being written, being registered, being deemed of those who are forgetful. You've now escaped being in a state of forgetfulness because you've recited 50 verses of the Quran in a day.
And I'm not saying this so that we all feel bad. I'm saying this to show that there is an importance to adding some of these ingredients to our lives on a regular basis. Otherwise, by default, the human being falls into a state of forgetfulness and a state of heedlessness, being unaware, randomness. You just go through the motions in life without any meaning. And this, by the way, causes all sorts of issues, psychological and others, to live life without meaning. Okay, in any case, that was the second point. The third point related to this. Does it mean that we're expecting all of us now to, you know, sleep four hours a day and then fast the rest of the day and then be in a state of worship all the 20 other hours of the day? Is that what we're saying? No. Can you study and work and hang with your families and your friends and entertain yourself and rest and play and laugh? Can you or no? Of course you can. But it has to be done in a way that you don't consider that now to be a life of foolishness. That's first. That's the low standard. Whatever your standard is, what's an acceptable level for you? I leave that to you. I can't tell you what it is for you. You should know. You should decide how much is a good amount to sleep. Maybe 12 hours of sleep a day is too much. Maybe seven meals a day is too much. That's one. How much time do you spend watching TV? How many movies in a day or a week or a month? How much do you spend on that? How much energy goes into hanging out and chilling? How much money goes into that? This needs to be part of living a life where you are aware. Don't just go with the motions. Look at it. Say, is this appropriate? Do I need to reduce this, increase that? That's second. All of that goes into that first layer. The second layer of this, when I look at my days, when I look at my activities, the second layer of that is that when I do all of these things, it's not just that I spend the appropriate amount of time by my standards, the appropriate amount of energy, the appropriate amount of money, that's all good. That's all fine. But the second layer should be that even while I'm doing this, I'm not in a state of complete foolishness and forgetfulness. So while I play, while I work, while I laugh, while I hang out, while I, whatever it is that I'm doing, while I chill, God is still there. God doesn't go away. So that I never forget that God is there. Even while I'm playing, even while I'm working, even while I'm chilling. It's not that when I chill, there's no more God. And I'm completely heedless and I can fall into any type of foolishness. But this is where we say this is the importance of practice. This is not an automatic state. This is someone who have self-disciplined, who have trained themselves that when I'm in any state, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with me. And so I'm doing something that I believe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows. Our imams have said this. We have talked about time management and we'll come back to time management. Our imams say, go, entertain yourself, rest. Rest enough that you feel enough power and energy and motivation to come back renewed and recharged to worship God better in some ahadith. If you're feeling all the time under stress and under pressure and you can't perform in any way in your life, that's an issue. Al-Bayt talked about this. Go and rest, so long as it's in halal. Go rest. Go do whatever is entertaining and fun and restful to you. Do it all. But during that time, also remember that God is also watching. When you watch the movie, remember God is watching. When you chill with your friends, remember God is watching. God is always there. And this awareness means that you're not in a state of forgetfulness. I'm not going to go beyond and say, perhaps you are in a state of worship even while doing this. But this is the dhikr. One of the meanings of dhikr, وَلَذِكْرُ اللَّهِ أَكْبَرُ 
the remembrance of God is even greater, the dhikr of Allah is even greater than performing the worship, act of worship such as the prayer, is that no matter what's happening, you are in a state of remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now of course, if you are wearing your ihram and you're performing the tawaf, the circumambulation around the Kaaba, and you are fully focused on that, of course, generally speaking, a human being is going to be a lot more focused on God at that moment than perhaps, you know, chilling with your friends watching a movie. But there is a way to do both while remembering that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there. And that's why we're saying it doesn't disqualify. We're not saying that because you are a good Muslim, you're a good mu'min, that none of this can happen in your life. And this is not the point of the hadith. That you are a scholar, therefore none of this can exist in your life. You carry knowledge, therefore you can no longer have any fun. You can't chill and you can't have fun and you can't spend time with family or friends and entertain and play and so on and so forth. We're just saying that it's not done in a way that you or someone who knows, looking at it, would say, this is foolishness. That this is heedlessness, forgetfulness of the things that matter. And perhaps one last point and we'll stop here. Going back to the first topic we began with when we started talking about the scholar. Before talking about the teacher and the scholar in Islam, we said we're going to make one introduction. Open bracket, close bracket. One quick introduction. We asked a question. We said this is not how this is usually taught, but we need to keep this in mind. Very important. The introduction was, who is the true scholar in Islam? Who matches the description of the true teacher or the true scholar in Islam? And in short, so that we don't repeat two or three lectures we spent on this, we said it is only the person that God assigns as the scholar and the teacher. You remember that. And what about everyone else? To the extent that they match this, they are a scholar and they are a teacher. Because they're not infallible. Because there is always room for error. Because there is always room for something lacking and missing. When we looked at the ahadith, we saw a number of these ahadith. Ahl al-Bayt spoke about this themselves. Perhaps this is another hadith. If you look at this hadith, the Imam, Imam Ali salam saying, in the heart of the scholar, there is no there is no foolishness and there is no not an ounce of arrogance or ghirra, forgetfulness. Who does this apply to? The infallible. One more example of this notion that we presented that the more your rank, your merit, your worth is to represent Ahlul Bayt or represent the person that God says, this is the teacher, this is the scholar, and in their absence, you follow the others. Who are the others? The ones who most match them. They are in truth, they don't stand alone by themselves, those others. Those others are like arrows. The greater the scholar is, the more of a clear arrow they are to, bringing you back to Ahlul Bayt bringing you back to the Qur'an, bringing you back to the Prophet. The more they do that, the more they are a scholar. The more they are infallible, in other words. Because that part is 100% guaranteed. It's infallible. What about the rest? The rest is human effort. With everything that that entails. Okay, so this becomes, it's just an illusion and a link to something we said before but the hadith to me falls under that category inshallah we're going to talk about the other traits when we meet again we spent a little bit too long on this one but I think it, it was worth it inshallah we're going to talk about hilm or one way to hilm is a very interesting word in Arabic that is very difficult to translate there's no match for it directly 
I'm going to translate it as something like compassionate patience. That you're able to endure patiently something while displaying compassion and mercy. That's hilm. Sometimes it's also translated as wisdom. Okay, so we're going to talk about that trait. We're going to talk about the importance of silence for the person who carries knowledge. And there's other things related to jealousy and other moral traits, inshallah, we'll talk about. As we said, these have to do, there's a dimension for these that is spiritual. And we're not focused on the spiritual. We talked enough about the spiritual. There's a dimension of these that has to do with psychologically being able to influence others. That's important. And there's a dimension of this that has to do with yourself. And what does this knowledge mean for you? And that this needs to show in your conduct. It has to have an effect, not only spiritually on you, but in the general manner in which you carry yourself in the world. And the moment you have knowledge, as we said, you have power. And that power means that there's always a risk of abusing it. There's always a risk of using it in the wrong way. And so when the imams, for instance, when we talked about the importance of modesty, we said because the human tendency is to use power for arrogance, use the power to dominate. So you see the insistence that the true scholar is the one who does not dominate. The true scholar is the one who is modest, who is humble. The more knowledge, the more modesty. And so on and so forth. And this applies to these other traits too. So inshallah, we'll continue that. The next time we meet, وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين.